My name is Abby Coltrane, and I'm a covenant member here, and I'm a member of the Manchuk CG. I um, am a part of the Well College team also, and I serve in Well Kids and in the foster care ministry. Today, I will be reading from 2 Peter chapter 3, um, starting in verse 14. I'm going to hold it. Okay. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby. Appreciate it. What's up, Well Family? How is it going? Uh, my name is Yusuf. I'm the Well College, well, the college director here at the Well. Uh, and I'm excited to be here, as I always am, just to be able to sit under the Word of God together. So, um, I actually just wanted to open us up with a question. Uh, how many of us caught the, uh, the Kansas versus UNC game last week, last Monday? Any of us? Okay, so, so I caught the game. Uh, and not only was I happy about the outcome, because, you know, most of our, our staff filled out a bracket, and I just so happened to win it. <laughs> and that feels, feels nice. Uh, and that wasn't me, like, rubbing it in their face. You know, I'm much more humble than that. Uh, but there's something I watched during that game that, led, that left a bigger impact on me than just Kansas winning. Um, during halftime, ESPN decided to run a story about a guy named Justin Hardy. Now, Justin was a star basketball player for D2 University, uh, and he was super healthy on every level until he started to feel a little bit of pain in his stomach. And it turned out to be stomach cancer, an illness for which there is no cure. And so Justin, as a way to kind of cope with his prognosis, begins to write a letter to himself. And as the story opens up, you, you, the scene opens up with Justin writing this letter and the narrator asking the viewer, if you could write a letter to yourself about facing your own mortality, what would it say? And immediately I thought, I was like, wow. If I knew I was going to die soon and decided to write a letter, like who would I write it to and what would it say? And I typically don't like starting sermons off this heavy, but, but we've been in the book of 2 Peter in a sermon series called Constructing Our Faith. And I want us to get like a realistic feel for, for what the book of 2 Peter is about because Peter, by his own acknowledgement, knows that he's about to die soon. He's about to die and not in his sleep, right? He's about to be martyred for the faith. And so, so his, as he pens what we know is, is likely the last section of the last letter he'll ever write, what is the big question I believe that he's answering? It's simple. How do you end well? How do, you, how do you finish your life remaining faithful to Christ? And he answers that question in our passage today. And you want to know how he does it? 
he essentially just like restates or reemphasizes things that he's already said in 2 Peter. And so for that reason, this was actually not too difficult of a sermon to put together because, you know, it's not new material, but it's also kind of hard to preach a sermon that everyone's heard the material before. So it was kind of difficult. But even though Peter is a little bit repetitive, I think we would do right to really receive Peter's last words as a final exhortation before he enters glory. And so Peter chooses to tackle, how do, how do you end well as a believer? And to be honest with you, I get it. I 100% get how Peter, how this is what Peter wants to tackle as, he's, as his life is coming to an end. Because on campus, I, I meet students all the time that, that grew up in a Christian household, active in their youth ministry, right? Maybe came to, came to faith at a church camp, got baptized, and then get to college and punt their faith, Right? I know people who I ran with in college pursuing the Lord together and not too long after graduation, they want nothing to do with Jesus anymore. So often there's a lot of passion and excitement and commitment to following Jesus that's present at the beginning of the relationship. But over time, not only does the passion and the excitement fade, but the desire to follow Jesus does too. And Peter's desire is that none of us would fall away. And so the title of today's message is Conclude the Way You Started. That is to say, how do we end our lives with the same commitment to Christ that we had at the start of the relationship, all right? So how do we end well? There's actually seven things that we'll cover today, and they all start with the letter E. So the unofficial title of the sermon is The Seven E's to Ending Well, right? <laughs> all right, so we find the first thing in the first verse of our passage. So as Peter's wrapping up, the first thing he says Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So notice that he doesn't say if. He says since. So right off the bat, Peter's got this like not a suggestion, this expectation that if you're a believer in Christ, if you are a son or daughter of God, there's something that you ought to be actively waiting on. And so what is he talking about? Well, we got to go back one verse just to see what he talks about. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for what? A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then we get to our passage, and Peter's saying, listen, knowledge of the fact that Jesus is coming back to, to expose evil and rid it from this, his new creation, right? Knowledge of the earth, knowledge of the fact that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth should create in us a sense of anticipation, that impacts how we live today. So Peter's like, you wanna end well? Maintain an eternal perspective. Don't forget the end times. Don't forget, don't, don't get so caught up in the day-to-day -day that you forget that there's, there's, this is not the best life life has to offer. There's more to life than what we have today. In other words, don't live for temporary pleasures that this world has to offer. I think there's a lot of, I think one of the biggest evidences that the world we live in is a broken place is that all the pleasures you can experience are all temporary, even the good ones, right? The, the pleasure from a great tasting meal, it fades. The high from achievement, it fades, right? No one cares who won the Super Bowl 10 years ago, right? The high from every drug out there fades and oftentimes can leave you in a worse state than when you started, right? Everything in this world is temporary, and I think we all understand that. Some of you guys know this really well, because in high school, you built these massive kingdoms, 
You were king of the castle, right? You got a lot of attention for being the best looking or the most achieved or the most athletic. And then you get to college and that kingdom comes crashing down, right? Because no one cares. No one cares what you did in high school, right? So if you're walking around with your high school letterman on a college campus, <laughs> it better be because you're cold, not because you're showing off, right? And even if you are cold, find something else to wear, right? No one cares about your patches. No one cares. When we, when we hold too tightly to temporary, like when we lose our internal perspective, we hold too tightly to temporary pleasures. And so to keep us from falling into this trap, Peter tells us, man, maintain, maintain an eternal perspective. If I believe the lie that, man, right now, right here is the best life has to offer, and so I just put all my might into extracting the most pleasure out of this temporary life, I likely won't end well. Peter doesn't want us to go there. Maintain an eternal perspective. That's the first thing. What's the next thing Peter says to do in light of this eternal perspective, though? Since you were waiting for these things, be diligent. And that word diligent means to make every effort. Make every effort. And I can just kind of pause right there because I can already feel like the stress levels rising in the room. Because words like effort, I believe, I think they scare us when we see them in the Bible, right? But the reality is Peter's very clear here that, that there, it's not possible to, to grow in Christ without effort. Effort is essential to ending well. Paul says it too in Colossians 3, right? So the question becomes effort to do what? I think the word effort scares us because we just assume that it means like effort to earn our salvation. And so we shy away from it. But the Bible's clear, there's, there's no amount of effort that we can give that earns our salvation. So that's not what this passage is talking about. We've gotta understand, anytime the Bible uses words like effort to describe the Christian walk, it's not about how to earn your salvation, it's about what to do with your salvation. So, so now that you are saved, here is how to live. And it requires effort on your part, right? Now that you are a Christ follower, this is what it looks like to grow more into his image and growth requires effort. And we understand this intuitively. I just feel like we have a hard time applying the same logic to our relationship with Christ. Like think about your favorite athlete, right? And I'm not talking about you or your friend. I'm talking about someone who's like done like big things, right? Someone who's well accomplished. And imagine having a conversation with them and being like, bro, congrats. Congrats on accidentally becoming the three-time, you know, world-class Olympian that you are. Accidentally? Yeah, bro, on accident, right? You didn't have to really put in any effort. You just did nothing and came in here and won the whole competition. That's foolish. Because we know that growth requires effort. It requires effort. And if we become followers of Christ, Operating under this notion that, man, if to grow in my relationship, I don't have to put in any effort to stay in the fight, we, we likely won't end well. Period. Uh, here's a quick example. One of our distinctives at the well um, is that we fight for community. And I love that whoever came up with that used the word fight, right? And not because I'm an aggressive person, but because I feel like the word fight really embodies the effort required to live in biblical community as Christ calls Christians to. It's not easy. Living in biblical community won't happen on accident. You have to put effort in. 
right? And so just to lovingly convict some of us in here, some of us show up every Sunday but are not in any form of biblical community throughout the week. And it's not to shame you. <laughs> it's to encourage you, beloved, as Peter would tell you, make every effort. If you truly consider yourself a follower of Christ, then be willing to do things that, that don't come easy to your flesh, right? Man, yeah, I could think of 50 more examples, honestly. And they'd apply to all of us. Tithing requires effort, yet we're called to do it. We're called to sing, requires effort. Running the race well takes effort, and Peter understands this. That's why he uses that word diligent in general. But as we keep reading, he gets more specific. Be diligent to do what, right? To be found without a spot or a blemish and at peace. Okay, remember, right? Before we freak out, make every effort, right? Be diligent to be found is not saying be diligent to become, okay? Right? Be diligent to be found spotless and blameless is not to say be diligent to become spotless, blameless, right? So this passage is actually isn't about our righteousness. It's about the righteousness of Christ. How can I say that with confidence? Because Paul and Peter use the same language in other verses, Paul, when in Philippians 3, says this, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order, that I might, my, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Okay? So it's not about our righteousness. It's about Christ's righteousness that covers us if indeed we're found in him. But just like we talked about, Peter would assume that if that's you, if you are found in Christ, it ought to impact the way that you live. And he does it in, in 1 Peter, the first book he writes to the church. He's writing to people that are tempted to live however they want because they're, they're facing persecution. They're in exile. And he writes to them, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like what? That of a lamb without spot or blemish. So your sins were, were paid for by a perfect sacrifice and therefore make every effort to showcase the fear of God in the way that you conduct yourself. In other words, don't indulge in a, in a sinful, debaucherous lifestyle. Ending well requires effort in general, but especially effort towards eradicating our sin. We don't entertain it. We put an end to it, right? And so let me be clear. There's, there's no sin that is too big for the grace of God to cover. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is that there are very real consequences to allowing sin to fester in our lives. Because sin full growth, full grown, leads to death. And the shame that it produces will rob us of the peace that Peter talks about in this verse. You know, I, um, as I was working on the sermon, I, I immediately thought of a friend in college who came to Christ and was just on fire, right? Like running hard after the Lord, was super popular in his like own sphere of influence. And so immediately became an effective evangelist. He's bringing friends with him at every ministry event that we have, right? 
And fast forward a couple months, he just falls off the face of the planet. We're like, where did he go? Not returning any of our texts or our phone calls. And I would see him in the hall, and he would just avoid me, right? And there was one time I, like, cut him off, right? Like, not so fast. <laughs> and he tried to, like, make his way around me, and I just followed him. Like, what, bro, what's going on, man? What, what happened? It turns out he decided to live with his girlfriend. And they're not walking in sexual purity. And so the shame from that got him to believe the lie that, that God's grace isn't big enough to cover his own sexual failures. And so he derailed. He fell off. He chose to stop following Christ. Because sin undealt with, it slows us down. And it keeps us from crossing the finish line of faith with confidence. That's why the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, let us cast off the weight and sin that so easily entangles us that we may, what, run with endurance the race set out for us to run. Make every effort to be found completely in Christ, not with one foot in the world, eating of its forbidden fruits, and the other foot in the church, right? Every effort to be found in Christ. We don't entertain our sin. We, we eradicate it. We do whatever it takes to kill it. We can talk about that forever, by the way. So if y'all want to talk about that more, maybe do that in CGs. But overall, ending well requires effort in general, but especially effort towards eradicating our sin. All right, verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Okay, so Peter says, count the Lord's patience as salvation. What does that mean? Once again, you kind of have to read the, the previous passages that we went to, through to understand that. He's essentially saying this. Don't think that the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because he's being passive. Rather, he actively desires that people would turn from their way and turn to him. And so that is motivating a sense of patience towards us for people to have time to repent and come to Christ. Right? And so the next E to ending well is experiencing that God's patience has led to your salvation. And here's what I mean by that. If you were to ask me if I knew that, if I thought God was patient, if I believed that, I would tell you yes. The Bible says it, right? It's not hard to connect the dots intellectually that an, that an all-loving being is also perfectly patient. I get it. But it's one thing to know that here, right, intellectually. It's another thing entirely to know it experientially where I can say that, okay, I can tie God's patience to my own personal experience of salvation, right? To be able to say, okay, I would not be in the faith today, I wouldn't be a son of God today if it wasn't for Christ's patience towards me, his outlandish patience towards me. As someone who grew up Muslim, right, and didn't believe the gospel until two years after it was shared with me, I, I realized, okay, according to Peter, Christ could have decided to come back the day after I rejected the gospel and yet decided to wait at least two more years so that I would come to faith, right? Because he's patient. He's patient. And I really do believe ending well requires that we internalize, we have experiential knowledge of how God's patience has led to our salvation if we're in Christ. Here's why I think it's so important to ending well. Think about how Peter addresses Paul in the rest of that verse. He calls Paul a beloved brother. How is that possible? How is that possible? For those of you who don't know, before Paul came to Christ, he was a persecutor of Christians. Like he had his hand in killing them and imprisoning them, right? People that were not only Peter's brothers and sisters in the faith, 
but, but Peter's friends, people that Peter appointed to be leaders in the church, Paul had his hand in killing them. And so I don't know about you, if you hurt my friends, we're not friends. That's the natural impulse, right? And so how is Peter able to look at Paul and not hold his former life against him and to consider him a, a, a brother, a beloved brother of the faith? How is that possible? I believe it's because Peter, if you look at his life, he has experiential knowledge of God's patience. Peter was always missing the mark, always dropping the ball. There are over like 10 recorded instances where Peter just messes up. He, dro- he misses it. And though he is sometimes rebuked, he's never rejected. I truly believe that, that if we're going to end well, it takes us individually being able to tie God's patience to our own personal experience of salvation. Because I've seen how frustration towards others, low-grade hate towards others, has just derailed some of my brothers and sisters in the faith. I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen hate consume people to the point of no return. And rather than showing any sort of patience towards their enemies, that comes from realizing that they wouldn't even be Christians if it wasn't for God's patience. They decide, to hold, they, they decide to just hold really tightly to their own personal sense of vengeance, their own personal sense of justice. Rather than surrendering it at the cross, they put it on the throne of their lives. Because when Jesus calls us to forgive our enemies, to extend grace towards people that, that, don't, that are enemies, that we consider enemies, it rubbed too hard against their desire for justice. And so they decided to punt the faith. They decided to make that sense of justice the Lord of their lives. And that bitterness turned into low-key hatred. Patience doesn't mean passive, by the way. Right? I mean, you know, Peter was rebuked by Peter, all, I mean, by Jesus all the time. He was rejected. He was never rejected, though. He was often disciplined but never despised. And this patience is to come from an act of desire that someone would repent and receive grace, not that they would perish. And so the next E to ending well is actually one that we tackled at the beginning of the series, so we won't spend too much time here. Um, But it's that we engage with God's word. We engage with it. We don't just read it. We allow it to read us and align our lives to it, right? Uh, The one thing I do want to point out, though, is at the end of verse 16, uh, Peter puts Paul's writings on the same level as other scriptures. He's like, listen... Some are going to twist Paul's words just like they do with the other scriptures. And so Peter is obsessed with the word of God. He's been referencing it left and right. He's referenced the Old Testament. He's referenced the New Testament. And here he validates the epistles and references them as scripture, which is awesome. The one takeaway, though, is that as we engage God's word, we do it in its entirety. Right? We engage all of it. It's all profitable. It's not meant to be cherry-picked. Right? It's not, meant to, it's not meant for us to just kind of isolate a few verses because of how they make us feel and then just kind of ignore the others. I like the Bible. Doesn't it say, you know, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast? I got it on my coffee mug, right? I like the Bible. I can get down with the Bible. Oh, yeah, okay, well, what about the part where Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments? Well, that's in the Bible. Yeah, it's in the Bible, Right? As we engage with all of the scripture, we need to understand all of it is profitable and all of it is meant to be the foundation on which we construct our faith. All right, Peter says something next that I hope is actually pretty encouraging to everyone in here. 
end of verse 16, when talking about Paul's letter, he literally says there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Okay, let's pause for a quick second, all right? Uh, show of hands, how many of us in, in here have ever read something in the Bible and then thought to ourselves afterwards, what in the world did that mean, right? Any of us, right? Okay, I want you to imagine Peter, <laughs> okay? Think of Peter, one of the closest followers in Jesus' closest posse, right? Like one of the closest followers of the Son of God. Someone who literally saw Jesus feed 5,000 people with but a few <laughs> loaves and some fish. Someone who Jesus allowed to walk on water, right? Someone who saw Jesus in his glorified state before his resurrection. I can keep going. Someone who literally saw Jesus ascend from earth into heaven. This is Peter. Now, I want you to imagine that very same Peter reading the very same scriptures that you and I have and being like, yeah, I don't get it either. <laughs> I don't get it. Some things are hard to understand, man. What does that do to your soul? What does it do to your soul? My hope is that it encourages you and allows you to breathe a mega sigh of relief. Some things are hard to understand. It's okay to have a hard time understanding some things. It's okay to have questions. Doesn't make you less holy. Doesn't make you any less of a child of God. Matter of fact, I actually believe that ending well requires that we would expect that some things in the scripture are gonna be hard to understand. Because I've seen people deconstruct because of this, right? Oh, I don't get it. I, this is really hard. So they just chunk the entire Bible out and do their own thing. It's okay to have a hard time understanding some of the things in the Bible. It's a hard text sometimes. Here's the thing, though. Just because something is hard to understand doesn't make it any less true. And just because there are some things that are hard to understand, it doesn't make the things that are easy to understand any less true either. Make sense? Right? So, like, Romans 9 is hard. It doesn't mean the easy things like John 3.16 are now all of a sudden false. Uh, uh, predestination, free will, both. I don't know, man, but I know that God loves me, died to save me, so that in Christ I would have life eternal. The hard things don't make the easy things any less true. I think this concept, I think gravity is actually a pretty good example of this, right? Um, the concept of gravity is fairly intuitive to all of us because we interact with it. We experience it 24-7. Right? We see the effects of it. But the reality is gravity is like really complicated. And the more you study it, the, the more difficult it becomes to understand. It's complicated. It affects how fast time flies. In places where gravity is strong, time moves slower than in places where gravity is weak, where time moves faster. And if you're like, what does that even mean? Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly, it's hard to understand. It's hard to understand, but just because it's hard to understand doesn't make it any less of a reality. Like, like if I were to be like, oh, I don't understand all the complexities of gravity, so I'm just going to walk off a 10-story building without a parachute, doesn't make sense. It's foolish. The point is that we know enough about gravity. We know enough about it to put our faith in it. We put our faith in it. Every time I shoot a basketball, right? Every time I shoot a basketball, I'm, I have faith that gravity will pull it back down into the hoop, right? 
Make no mistake, every step you take, you are exercising faith in gravity. You know you're not about to float off into the air because gravity's got you. And if you can put your faith in gravity, though you don't understand everything about it, you can put your faith in the God that spoke gravity into existence. And you can put your faith into the words that he speaks to you and I through the Bible, even though some parts are hard to understand. Ending well requires that we engage all of the scriptures. We expect some things to be difficult, so we don't make the foolish mistake of assuming everything in the Bible is wrong because we can't understand some things. And another thing that we can expect, which is something Tori has already touched on, is that there are going to be people who use the excuse that there are some things that are hard to understand, that some things that are hard to understand, as an excuse to purposely twist the scriptures. Verse 16, there are some in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant are unable and un unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do with other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So what is he saying here? Know beforehand or expect that there are going to be people out there that twist the Bible and make it say something it doesn't say. We've already touched on this in our false teacher sermon, so go back and watch that for more insight. But Peter gives us three things to identify those type of people real quick. They're ignorant, they're unstable, and they're lawless. Ignorant meaning they're, they're not teachable, right? They're unlearned. They haven't really taken the time to really study the Bible in its context, in its entirety. They're unstable unable to stand firmly in place. And that word lawless literally means one who breaks through restraint of law and gratifies his or her lusts. So they're ruled by this insatiable desire to do whatever they want. And in order to feel justified to do that, they'll take the Bible and make it say what they already want it to say. And Peter says it's gonna lead to their destruction in the end. Therefore, ending well requires that we, we expect this as to see them coming from a mile away so we don't lose our own stability in their foolishness. We could stay on that one forever, but I really want us to sit in the last, and I believe the most important E to ending well as believers. And it's that we continually embrace the endless grace of God over and over and over again. Verse 18, as his letter comes to a close, Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. How do we do that? How do we do that? I believe it's by continually embracing the grace of God, right? It's essential to ending well. It's essential to knowing at the end of our lives with confidence that we've ended well. And so how do we do that? How do we continually embrace the grace of God? Ironically, I think Peter is such a great example of how to do this because he was a mess, like I said before. He was a mess. He was always falling short, always got it wrong. But he knew, even though he didn't have it all together, he knew that no matter how, how bad he messed up, God's grace would be there to pick him up. He knew that. And so knowing that, what would he do? Rather than reject God's grace by continuing on in his own direction, he would return. He would repent. He would embrace God's grace by turning from his own way to pursue Christ over and over and over again. You look at his life, you see it clearly. He said something dumb, gets rebuked, 
but continues to follow Christ and repents, right? He drops the ball, gets, gets a little disciplined, continues to follow Christ. There's a time where he denied Jesus three times. And he ran in his shame, far from God. But when he saw Christ on the shore and saw Christ's arms open, arms filled with grace, what did he do? He returned. He got in that water and swam back to Christ. He returned. He repented. And so this was the cycle Peter experienced as he grew in the grace of God. He was continually embracing God's grace through the process of repentance. And, you know, many would fall away. Many would be like, yo, Jesus' teachings are way too hard. And they would just leave him, choose to stop following him. But Peter told Christ, listen, I ain't going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. You have the words of eternal life. Where else would I go? See, Peter always returned to Christ because he knew he found a good chef whose words sometimes were hard to digest but ultimately provided the nourishment that our souls need to live. He knew that. And so he continually grew in God's grace. How? By embracing God's grace through the act of repentance. And so our gospel point today actually comes by asking the question, how is this possible? How is it possible that, that Peter, in every failure, returns to Christ to embrace God's grace with confidence to know that he'll never be rejected? How is that possible? Find our answer in Jesus. See, Jesus ended remarkably well and yet was treated like the worst sinner to ever exist. Jesus never lost sight of eternity. He never entertained sin. He always kept that eternal perspective, right? He never struggled to engage God's word. He was the very word of God himself. He never struggled to submit to God's will. Even when he asked God that the cup of wrath would pass from him, what does he say? Not my will, but your will. He only spoke what he heard directly from the Father, never twisting his words. He showed incredible patience even with his enemies, actively desiring that they would turn and repent, so much so that as they're crucifying him, as they're nailing the nails into his arms and feet, he begs for their forgiveness. Who does that? And as he's on that cross, as he, as he says, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? We see that the Father turns his face away from Jesus. Why? So that you and I, every time we fall short, every time we're on the trajectory to not end well, every time we fail to, to engage in God's word, every time we entertain sin instead of eradicate it, Every time we fail to maintain an eternal perspective, claiming with our thoughts and actions that temporary worldly pleasures are greater than Christ himself, that every time we fall off, we may now have the opportunity to turn to the Father and receive what? Grace. Upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. The Father turns his face away from Jesus so that we can turn our face to Jesus and find grace. It's the gospel, that we would repent and receive this endless grace of God. Notice how the last E disappeared, right? Like the last E up there, all of the other E's disappeared in light of the last one, right? Embrace the endless grace of God. You know why I did that? 
Because I don't care if you remember all the other E's. I don't care. I don't care. Because this is where it starts and ends. Right? It's God's grace that empowers us to maintain an eternal perspective. It empowers us to put forth the effort required to grow. By embracing God's grace, it empowers us to engage his word. Empowers us. God's grace empowers us to end well. It empowers us to end well. And we see the true power of this gospel of grace manifested in how beautifully Peter ends his life. You see, he went from being a man that denied Christ three times to a man that, when being crucified for his faith in Christ, asked his crucifiers to do it upside down. Crucify me upside down. Why? Because I'm not worthy of dying in the same manner that my Jesus died in. You see, in his last words, in his final letter, he states, to Christ be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. We see that the last words in his final letter weren't just words on a page for Peter. These words marked the end of his life. They marked the end of his life. Dying in a manner to glorify God. Peter wasn't perfect. He messed up a ton. But he ended remarkably well. And we can too. We can too as long as we remember, man, Jesus is the only thing that matters. And that when we find ourselves falling off, that we would turn, embrace the endless grace of God through repentance. That confession and repentance would just be a normal part of our walk. Because Jesus is better than anything else and desires that we would come to him (laughs) over and over and over and over again. So my prayer is that every heart in here would say and believe not just now, but at the end of our lives. To Jesus be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. Let's pray. Jesus, God, we thank you so much. We thank you so much, God. There's, there are no words to describe how miraculous, just how scandalous this grace is. Father, my prayer is for people in here that an honest assessment of their lives would come to the conclusion that, man, they are not on trajectory to end well. My prayer for that person is that they would hear your words, come to me, come to me, that your arms are wide open, ready to give endless grace. Whether we're running strong or falling off, would we continually embrace that grace, God? We continue to come back to you day after day, over and over and over again. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.